going on. There's this thing, uh, and I, look, I hope this doesn't, I hope this doesn't bother you that I reference something that I am familiar with in my life. But I hope that, as I do, you'll find a, a connection to it, even if, even if you're not sure what that's like. But um, you all know that I've served active duty in the military for a while and still serving on, in the National Guard. And I love what I do. I love the military service. I, I love the military culture, too, in a lot of ways. There's this one thing, though, that, that sometimes gives us a little bit of, of a heartache. Um, it's this thing called orders. Now, orders can come to us in a lot of different ways. They can come to us, somebody standing there like this, telling us what to do, giving us orders. Um, some of us have been on the receiving end of that and the giving end of that. I like the giving end of it a lot better. Um, but then there are these things called, uh, there are these orders that are, are written out, um, re- relatively complicated. If I were to show you uh, a copy of military orders, it is so technical. Most, most, most service members don't even understand what's in those military orders, um, let alone um, the people who make them. Um, but, but they're so technical. But there's one aspect of, of every military order that is so key. And it's one of those things that when I get a copy of orders in my email or something, and I, I'm thinking, okay, here's this upcoming training event or, or this mission that we're going to go on. The one thing I try to key in on is the commander's intent. I want to know what does the commander want to see happen? Uh, the, one of the definitions that's been thrown around uh, is, is this in terms of the military. The commander's intent is a clear, concise statement of what the force must do and the conditions the force must establish that represent the end state. In other words, these, these, these are the things that need to take place in order for us to meet the goal that we have. You can't go to war without an intent. Some have tried. You can't do that. You can't go on a, a mission and engage with the enemy in any way unless there's some kind of intent behind that. We can't do much of anything, including us as Christians, as believers, as disciples, as a church. We can't do our mission. We can't do the work that we do without understanding the commander's intent. Now, when I read, it, when I read those military orders, I sometimes scratch my head and I think, how are we going to do that? How are we going to accomplish that? What is this going to look like? You know, it, it's sort of there, the rest of the orders give, a, give more detail. But then when it really comes down to it, it's about individuals or small groups, units under that command to decide how we're going to complete that mission with the resources that we have, with the people that we have. And church, that's us today. In 2020. And every year. 
And every Sunday and every week, every day we wake up, if we belong to our commander, the king, Jesus, if we are his people, we have to figure out how are we going to accomplish the mission that he has for us. And today, we're going to zone in on that concise, clear statement that our commander made that is his intent for you and for me and for us as a church. We're going to zone in on that and see what that is because you can't fulfill the mission if you don't know what the commander intends for us to fulfill. So that's where we're at today. And that's where we're going to be today. And then over the next few weeks, Lord willing, I want us to explore more deeply, what does this all look like? How, what, are the, what are the convictions uh, in, from Scripture that we have as a church that will help us accomplish this mission and our commander's intent? So, let's look at a passage of Scripture that's probably familiar with, to many of you. Um, and I hope that today... You'll have fresh motivation or maybe fresh eyes to see something you you didn't see and maybe understand some of the implications of our commander's intent for you and for us as a church. Um, If you're able and would like to stand with me, I would invite you to stand as I read just a few verses here from Matthew chapter 28, beginning at verse 16. Matthew 28, it'll be verses 16 to 20. Follow with me. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we need this. We need this reminder. There are so many things going on in our lives, and so many pressures that we have, and we think we must do this, and we should do this, and we're distracted by many things. And even as a church, here we are in this big building, well, somewhat big building, God. But here we are in this place, and it's, and it's exciting, and it's new, and here we are with, a, with a, a new calendar ahead of us. How are we going to fill that? What are we going to do with this building? What are we going to do with our time and energy and our resources? Lord, help us to understand your intent for us as you have revealed it here in this scripture. Help us to be obedient. God, empower us and equip us with your presence for this work that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please be seated? First of all, uh, the first thing to note here is that our commander's intent is given to doubting disciples. And I'm really glad that Matthew put this here, that he told us about these disciples that when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And I'll tell you why I'm glad about that. 
is because as much as I want to be a fearless follower of Jesus, I'm not. And as much as I want to just go head, you know, head on to where God wants me to go and, and just let's do this, God. Let's go on this adventure. I hesitate. I, I second guess. I, I slow down. I falter. I stumble over and over again. This is good news that our commander's intent has been given to doubting disciples. Verse 16 says, now the 11 disciples, do you remember what happened to the 12? Read back in Matthew. You can find out about what happened to Judas, the betrayer. But the 11 there, the disciples, and they're named disciples, and that's important, they went to Galilee, that's where Jesus began his mission, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. They went to this place. We don't know where it was. Scholars have speculated. They're trying to figure out, was it this mountain? Was it that mountain? Was it it the mountain mentioned in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, when Jesus called his disciples to them? He went up a mountain. He called his disciples to them and began to teach them. That was a sermon on the mount, right? Maybe it was that mountain. We're not sure. But I think whatever, whatever mountain it was, the unnamed mountain, I think Matthew probably wants us to draw a connection back to that mountain and to think, ah, Jesus is about to teach them something. He's about to give them some instruction. He's about to tell them something important because that's what teachers do. That's how God has revealed himself. We see that played out over and over again in scripture where God speaks from a mountain. He speaks in a lot of different ways, but when he's revealing his, his, his ultimate and his authoritative word, he often does that from a mountain. Mount Sinai, the mountain in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, and now here. But notice something about these disciples uh, and see their action. They go to where Jesus had directed them. They go there they obey. They do. They do what Jesus asked. That's what disciples do. Disciples, disciples follow. Disciples obey. That's, that's just how it works. And, and, and notice as well in verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. See, um, if you have an earthly master or a boss, let's say, you do what they tell you to do. You just, you do it, or you don't, and then things go bad for you. But normally, you do it. But it usually doesn't lead to worship, does it? Here's one of the great differences between earthly masters and our eternal heavenly master. That when the disciples saw Jesus, they worshipped him. They worshipped him. And their worship, this is, this is them after, this is them in Jesus' presence after the resurrection. Oh, they had worshipped him before. And, and their worship followed the form of, of, of following, their, their amazement, and, and their bowing before him and going, who has authority to do such things? And, and their learning from him and their obedience to him. All of those things are worship. And they were doing that before and they continued to do that afterward. But it says that some doubted. Hmm. 
this is an interesting phrase and, and, I, and I'd, like, I'd like for him to dime somebody out. Tell us, who was it? Who's doing the doubting? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't tell us who's doing the doubting. It's some group of them. It, maybe it was some of the 11. Or there probably were other disciples aside from the 11 present at that time. Most likely because that's just how Jesus taught and did things. There are always people on the, on the outskirts of the, of, the, of the 12 disciples who were listening in. Maybe it was some of them. But I think Matthew is trying to help us see that of the 11 disciples, some of them had doubts. Some of them second-guessed. The, the, the word for doubt here is not necessarily the idea of having... Um, uh, having serious problems with the truth of something. Um, maybe we think of doubting as like, well, I doubt that happened. I doubt this is real. I doubt that. Uh, maybe it's like that. The only other time this word doubt is mentioned is back in Matthew chapter 14, where Jesus walks on the water to his disciples and calls Peter to step out of the boat and walk to him. And Peter does it. But then, remember, when he saw the wind and the waves, he got frightened and he began to sink. And Jesus rescued him, brought him back into the boat and said, Peter, why did you doubt? Why did you, the idea behind this word is to hesitate or have a second thought about something. What were the disciples having a second thought about? And, and it's related to faith, don't get me wrong. But what were they hesitating about? Maybe they were thinking, is this really him? Could be. But they hadn't met him and seen him. We can read the other accounts. The Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of John tells us a lot about how they interact. And even in Acts chapter 1, we see the disciples um, meeting with Jesus uh, um, over a, a period of time. Uh, maybe they were thinking, is he going to stay this time? Because he keeps appearing and disappearing. That's a weird, those, that's a weird, those are weird stories where Jesus appears to them behind a locked door and then suddenly he's gone from their, their midst and they're wondering, where is this Jesus? He's in sort of a, another dimension. His, his physical body doesn't have the same properties that you and I have. So will he permanently stay? Maybe they're doubting. Maybe they're doubting, is he going to, Stick with us. Or maybe, and I think this is probably the most likely, how can we follow a man who's not with us like he was with us for these past three years? How can we be a disciple of one who is soon to depart from us? How can we be his kingdom people if he's not with us anymore? The challenge, I think, for us, just like the disciples, is to, is to come to him, to worship him, worship which leads to this obedience that Jesus is calling them to. And as we do that, confess those very doubts that make us hesitate. To make us have a second thought about Jesus or about what he's asking us to do. 
I told you a few weeks ago about an experience that I had riding on the tail of a Chinook helicopter. And um, as you recall, it was a very fearful experience for me. It took a real act of faith for me to sit out there and to do that. Um, You could say that I had second thoughts about it. I had serious doubts about this. Should I do it? Will it be worth it? Will I lose my life in the process? And I'm thinking, I'm glad I signed my, my form. I was gonna, I'm glad I have insurance. That's what I'm going to say. Because if I fall out of this helicopter, at least my family will be taken care of. But I did do it. And what helped me was remembering the testimony of a friend who said, I know exactly how you feel. I've been there before. The first time I got out there, I was scared to death. The second time was a little bit easier. And after that, now I've done it a thousand plus times. And now it's just pure joy and thrill. And it, it's, it's not as fearful and scary as it used to be. I used to have doubts. I used to have second thoughts. But now, I just do it. That, that is an encouragement. To know that there are people who have followed Jesus and have found him faithful. We have a whole Bible of stories like that. We have a whole, we have a whole Bible full of, of people who, who had real, genuine fears, yet God was with them. And they took courage in that. They were, they, they took courage to be the people that God had called them to be. And here in this passage, as we look at these doubting disciples who are, who are worshiping and, and doing what Jesus asked them to do, even with the doubts that they have, Jesus is about to give them his final instruction to give him his commander's intent. And this intent is for them to take courage and to do it and to, and to be the people that he has called them to be and to do the things that he has called them to do, to remain faithful. Second thoughts can't keep us. We can't let second thoughts keep us from being who Jesus called us to be and to do what he called us to do. And so we've actually helped each other in this. In fact, this is probably a good Sunday, um, the fourth anniversary of, of the signing of our membership covenant, which is actually posted out in the, in the entryway there on the wall, to remember that. Our membership covenant looks kind of like this. I think, I think we have it up on the screen for you. It, it starts as, by God's grace, I will grow in my love and knowledge of Jesus through personal and group discipleship. Now, that is stated as an action, right? But I've thought about this. It's stated as an action, but actually it, it, 
it tells us a lot about our identity, who we are. It, it basically tells us that I'm a learner. That's who I am. If I'm, a, if I'm a part of God's church, I'm a learner. If I'm a disciple, if I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a learner. And I, and I don't ever stop learning. That's who I am by God's grace. The second statement is, by God's grace, I will connect with other believers in a missional community of the church. And, and really, that, that, that tells us about something else about who we are. I am known. I'm known. Of course, if I'm known, that means I know other people too. And those missional communities where we connect with other believers in the church is where we know and are known. By God's grace, I will worship God with other believers in the gatherings of the church. I am a worshiper. That's who I am. And I'm going to worship God with his people the way he has called us to, or I'm going to worship other things in other places at other times. But I am a worshiper. The next statement says, by God's grace, I will give generously and systematically to support the ministry of the church. And that says a lot about who we are and our identity. And it says at least this, I'm generous. Or maybe you could say, I'm a giver. Because God is a, good, is a giving God. And we're made in his image to be givers as well, to be generous. The next statement says, by God's grace, I will offer my spiritual gifts and talents and service to God through the church. We, we use everything that God has given us to be who God has called us to be. And that is, I am a servant. I serve others and I serve God in the ways that he's equipped me to serve. By God's grace, I will participate in members meetings. Well, this is, an, this is a fun one. Members meetings? You mean business meetings? Mm. If business needs to get done, I suppose so. But, but we, when we think about that and we think of the examples we have in the New Testament of the church gathering together to make decisions, it reminds us that I have a voice. I'm a part of this. To be a member means I have a voice to speak about these things. And so we put that in our membership covenant. And then the final statement in our covenant is, by God's grace, I will encourage, pray for, support, and submit to the leadership of the church. There's a lot of verses about this in the church, in, or in the New Testament, especially in the New Testament letters. Uh, first of all, it tells us that there are leaders in the church. And, and then it tells us that here's some of the ways that we can encourage them. Here's some of the ways that we can be good, I'd say followers, but, um, but it's sort of a, it, a one, it's, it's a two-way street of interaction um, within the church. And there's a lot of different leaders who do different things. And I thought about that. How, how would I put that as a, as a statement of identity? And I think I'd put it this way. I'm cared for. That's what, we're, that's what we hope and desire for. That, at least that's what we aspire. We want, we want to, be, to, to admit and recognize and acknowledge that we're cared for. 
There are people in this church who care deeply about your spiritual well-being. And they care deeply about the, the, the things that have been entrusted to us. I'm talking about physical things and monetary things and, and all of those things. And, and your leaders care for you deeply about all of those things. That's, that's in our membership covenant. That's who we are and who we aspire to be as a church. To be who Jesus called us to be leads to doing what he calls us to do. To be disciples, to be worshipers, even with our doubts. And our doubts can be allayed, I think, often by recognizing that our faith is well-founded. Our faith in Christ is well-founded because it's founded on his authority and his presence. Our commander's intent is founded on his authority and presence. Look with me again at verse 18. And Jesus came to them and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then in verses 19 and most of verse 20, he tells them what he wants to tell them. And at the very end, he wraps it back up by, by expressing to them another statement to assure them, I am with you always to the end of the age. So sandwiched, this command, the commander's intent, is sandwiched in between these two statements about authority and presence. Authority, God has it. So Jesus has it. Jesus always had this authority as the eternal son of God. He always did. But now, as he stands there before them, the resurrected Lord, he says, all authority has been given to me, all authority, excuse me, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I want you to know, folks, that this authority that I have has been vindicated by my own resurrection. You can trust me. If you were doubting about my authority up to this point, doubt no longer. I'm resurrected. Nothing can hold me back. No death can, can keep me at bay. No, no death, suffering, dying, the grave, the sins of the world, none of that can keep me from being sovereign over this world. And then there are these two passages that emphasize the authority that Jesus had and still has. And I think they're worth looking at briefly. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, uh, tells us uh, of this wonderful vision that Daniel had as he saw into heaven and he saw the throne. And it says this, he looked, oh, excuse me. And... I saw in the night visions, Daniel says, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's Jesus, friends. That's, that's him. He's got it. He's got the dominion and the glory and the kingdom. And it won't be destroyed. It will never be destroyed. It'll last forever. He has that authority. 
he, stand, he stood before his disciples with that authority and he stands with us today with the same authority. In fact, Paul helps us to understand a little bit more about that authority in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. When he says this about Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Did you hear who Jesus is? He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He's the reconciler. He's the one who made it possible. He saved us. He's done all of that stuff. And he still stands as the creator. He still sustains everything by his own word, by his own breath, by his own power. And he still has, he's still in the business of reconciling people to himself. He did it once for all by his blood, and he offers that through his word, through the gospel to others so that they can be rescued and transformed and reconciled to God, their father. This is, this is, this is more than a commander saying, here's what you should do and here's what I want to see happening. This is, this is God who made you and sustains you saying, here's what I want for you. Here's what I'm intending for your life to be all about. And so if we're still uncertain about that, wow, that's authority. The authority behind this commander's intent is great. His presence, his presence assures us in another way. He said in verse 20 there, and behold, look, see, pay attention to this. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. And when he says, I am with you always, it's a translation of this phrase, all the days. All the days, every day, every day of your life, he's present with you. I mean, that's the kind of presence that the disciples longed for, because, and that's the, that's the presence that they experienced for three years during his earthly ministry, and they couldn't imagine being without their master. It kind of reminds me of a scene in Star Wars. Remember the original Star Wars? There's Luke Skywalker, you know, the hero with trying to figure out, you know, what this whole Jedi thing is all about, right? And he has a mentor, old Ben Kenobi, Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? And Obi-Wan Kenobi is his mentor and he's teaching him and training him and he's showing him the ways of the Force and all of that stuff. Well, Luke can't possibly imagine what it would be like to lose his master. But yet, that happens, right? Am I giving something away? I mean, that movie's been out for 42 years, so you should have watched it by now. But Obi-Wan Kenobi is struck down by Darth Vader. 
and he's no more. And Luke can't believe it. He's like, I can't believe this happened. I don't have my master with me anymore. Until he hears his voice speaking to him. Here's the force to Luke. You know, all that stuff. And he's realizing that Obi-Wan can still speak to me. And then at the, at the, at the end, or near the end of the film, we hear Obi-Wan's voice saying, the force will be with you always. And we're thinking, yeah, that's awesome. Luke is not alone. He's going to have his mentor and he's going to still reassure him and he's going to still speak to him. And and all of this is really great because that's what we long for. We don't want to be without our master, the one we love, the one we want. But check it out. Jesus isn't a Jedi master, right? And he's not an impersonal force. He's the God of the universe. He's the creator. He's the sustainer and he's the reconciler. And he promises, I will be with you always to the end of the age. That's a better reassurance than some spooky ghost force guy. Force ghost guy. Something like that. That's awesome. What is it? That's God with us. Spoke about that a couple weeks ago, didn't I? The, the, the gospel of Matthew begins with, hey, all that history, all that history is culminating with this one little child who's going to be called Emmanuel. Matthew chapter 1 verse 23 says, and the virgin will be with child and will bear a son, conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that's how Matthew's gospel begins. God with us. Here he is in the flesh. And Jesus is about to ascend. And he's about to leave his disciples. He's about to leave his church. And he tells them, I will be with you always. I will leave, but greater things will take place here because I'm going to the Father. And then I'm going to send my spirit, my presence with you. It's what, it's what all of, all of creation has been longing for. It, it's, it's the story of the entire Bible. How do we get back into God's presence? And now he's here. He's showed us the way, the truth, and the life so that we can be with him. So check it out. To do our commander's intent, to do this thing of go therefore and make disciples, it, it means to walk with Jesus. Just as God and Adam walked together and as in Genesis chapter 5, Enoch walked with God and in Genesis chapter 17, God said to Abram, walk in my presence. And then in Genesis 26, God promised to Isaac, I'm going to be with you. My presence will be with you. And in chapter 28, he said the same thing to Jacob. I will be with you. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's here today as Jesus. And he's asking us to walk with him. This is the way. If I can use that, another Star Wars phrase. This is the way. Walk with Jesus making disciples. If you want to be with Jesus, be about making disciples. Because that's where Jesus is. He's making disciples. He hasn't stopped. He continues to make disciples. That's what he's all about. He's seen people, he's trying to see people go from death to life. And he's invited us to join him in that. 
Our commander's intent is to make disciples who make disciples. That's what he's all about. That's what Jesus is doing. I mean, that's the big idea here. It's, of course, it's his authority and his presence that is helping us do that to fulfill his disciple-making vision. But he's asking us to be part of it. So he says in verse 19, go therefore. That has, a, that has the, the, the force of a command, doesn't it? It sure sounds that way in English. And in Greek, the, the verbs are a little bit different, but the idea is still the same. The idea, it still has that force of, you're sent. I have sent you. I want you to go and make disciples. In John chapter 20, verse 21, see if this helps to clarify. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus, after the resurrection, is appearing to his disciples and he is commissioning them in a slightly different way. And so what does he say there? Jesus said to them, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. In other words, God sent me to do this mission, to redeem the world and to call people to me. Come into his kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And now Jesus is passing on that very mission to his disciples and to us. That we too have been sent. We've been sent everywhere. Everywhere. Because he said, go and make disciples of all nations. That's not just political groups. That's people groups, I think is a, a good way to think of that. That means everybody, everywhere, no matter what their language is, no matter what their culture is, they all need Jesus. And I'm asking you to go to them and call them to repent and believe in the gospel. So, look, some must go away from their homes and their homelands because there are people in the world who have not heard there are people in the world who don't even know what a bible is they've never heard the name of jesus but there are also a lot of dying people all around us here too some will go some will stay near but everybody is sent does that make sense everyone is sent to proclaim the message to proclaim the good news. Maybe we need to add, maybe we need to add another phrase to our membership covenant. Maybe, maybe something like, by God's grace, I will share the good news of Jesus at every opportunity or with anybody I have an opportunity. Because this really speaks to our identity as a witness. I'm a witness. That's who, that's who I am. If I'm in Christ, I'm a witness. I'm either going to be a, a faithful witness. The opposite of that is unfaithful. No, nobody, wants us, nobody wants to be thought of as an unfaithful witness to Jesus. But oftentimes, that's exactly where we're at. We are sent. We're sent to our schools, our places of work, our neighborhoods, our families. We're sent to other cities. We're sent to other states. We're sent to other countries. We're sent everywhere and anywhere possible. That takes 
some clear intentionality. It's gonna, it takes us to say, okay, yes, I'm going to take that seriously and I'm going to allow you to send me wherever you want to send me. Some of you who are sitting here might be called by God either currently or at some point to go somewhere else. This is what missionaries or church planters uh, or folks like that do. It's what motivates people to invest their time and their energy or their resources, money, for the sake of the gospel so they can go to more people. Go, go, go. You're sent, people, you're sent. And you're sent to what? Make disciples of all nations. And, I, and as I looked at this this week, I realized that really what he's saying is you're going to reproduce more disciples. In fact, you're going to kind of, you're going to do, not kind of, but you are going to do what I told you to do from the very beginning. In Genesis 1 verse 28, the Lord blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. And then he says it to Noah. Noah, I'm blessing you. Be fruitful and multiply. And then he goes to Abram and Isaac and Jacob. And every, you see, see how the pattern repeats over and over in every generation. God is saying, I'm going to make something of you. I want to multiply you. I want to do this. That's what I'm about. And so when the people don't, and they say, well, we don't want to go we do not want to be scattered all over the world. We want to make a name for ourselves. He comes down here and he disrupts them at the Tower of Babel because they were interested more in what they were going to build for themselves than doing what God had asked them to do, which is to go throughout the world to carry that blessing with them. And it was a blessing. That's the thing. Multiplication is a blessing. Isn't a new child, a new baby, a blessing? We, we've got one of my daughter's friends had a baby just a little over a year, about 13 months ago or so. Um, and she's been part of our life and we've seen this little baby and now she's kind of walking around and, and she's starting to talk a little bit and babble. And it's just, wow, what a blessing. And it's a miracle too. It's just kind of this natural, miraculous thing that God is doing. But it's a tragedy when there's death, right? That's what's so tragic about death, whether it's in the womb or outside of the womb, whether it's young or middle-aged or old. No matter when it happens, death is a tragedy. It shouldn't be like that. We're missing out on a blessing. Yes, we are. The ordinary course of life, the ordinary course of God's work is multiplication. That's what he's about. And when, if that's not happening, there's something wrong, isn't there? If we're not seeing people come to faith, something's wrong. If we're not seeing new things happen, not just for the sake of new things, 
But if we're not seeing disciples being made, something's wrong. If we're doing what Jesus has asked us to do and we're passing on that blessing to others, we're seeing that happen. We're gonna see it somewhere. We're gonna see people coming to faith in Christ. We're gonna see new groups formed. We're gonna see new churches started. We're gonna see people being sent out of this place when the room is too full. We're gonna have to send people out. You're gonna have to meet somewhere else in the valley. Let's start another church there. Or people are gonna come and go and they're like, I got a job in Oklahoma of all places. We're gonna say, don't go to Oklahoma, but we're gonna say, go there. You're sent by God there. Be about God's disciple-making work there. We're going to see that happening. And it's not without divine help. Because see, when Abraham and Sarah were contemplating God's promises to them, I'm going to multiply you. They said, how? How's that going to happen? We're old people. We're already old. We're already past childbearing age and we've not had any children how is this going to happen well it's not going to happen without divine help so Jesus came to them in in Genesis chapter 18 verse 14 he says that is anything too hard for the Lord at the appointed time I will return this next year And Sarah shall have a son. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Some of the transmission. Is anything impossible? And that is repeated again in the the New Testament. When Mary's scratching her head going, how is this going to be? I'm a virgin. How am I going to have a baby? Is anything impossible? Nothing's impossible for God. When, When I think of our church and our community and our city... I think this is impossible. There are people living and dying and going to hell left and right. There's so much brokenness around us. How are we going to see people come to faith in Christ? People who are so broken that they don't even, they don't even have a concept of what God can do in their life. And then we've got a lot of other people, a lot of other people, especially living out here in this community, who don't think they need Jesus. Thank you very much. They're doing just fine. They're happy with their lives. And I think it's going to be impossible for them to come to faith in Christ. Just like like Jesus said, it's impossible for the rich to come into heaven. But what was that? Nothing's impossible with God, right? God does the impossible. To multiply in this church and among our people is going to take divine intervention. It just is. And it's going to take divine intervention and we have the joy and the privilege to participate. He goes on and he says to them, and I, I, I would love to make more of these phrases, but I'll just say this. He tells them to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Baptizing them into or in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul mentions this in Romans chapter 6, uh, verses 4 and 5. As, he, as he's 
kind of explaining, well, who are you in Christ now? Now that you're saved, he says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In other words, this baptizing thing, while it's a, it is a sign of what God has done in a person's life. It is a sign of the good news that has come into a person and they have gone from death to life. Just as, just as God was buried and was raised, so the person coming to be baptized receives the sign of the new covenant and he's now initiated into God. All of God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The, the Father who sent and orchestrated and the Son who accomplished it and made it possible and the Holy Spirit who lives in the new believer. And then he says, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And much has been said about this. What Jesus does not say was, teaching them all that I have commanded you. Thank you. Teaching, he doesn't say, teach them all of this stuff. Help them to memorize all the books of the Bible. Or, that's good. I, I, I think that's a, that's a great thing to do. And know, know your Bible. Know where to go. He doesn't just say, hey, teach them all of these laws. Make sure you know the Ten Commandments. And you can explain them. He doesn't say, teach them the finer points of Reformed theology. Or any other of your favorites. Teaching them to obey teaching them to observe, teaching them to keep. In other words, teach them how to do all that I have commanded you, which means, yes, they need to know all that you've commanded them, but more than that, they need to know how to do it. And they need to do it. So, the commander has given us his intent. And we have, we have his intent here, and actually, we have a way to do it. We, we know what we ought to do. The Bible is full of all of the things that we should be doing. Jesus instructed. I mean, we got Matthew wrote 28 chapters. He wrote a long book that's divided into 28 chapters telling about what Jesus taught and what he did and the words that he proclaimed. We see his intent and then kind of like a good soldier does, says, well, how do I do that? Well, what does my training manual say or my field manual or my circular or whatever? And we go to God's word and we say, here's what I need to be doing. And every once in a while, we come across this situation in which the biblical context looks a lot different than the context that I live in. The culture is different. The language is different. Um, the people have different kinds of hang-ups, sort of. But the, the truth of the gospel remains the same. The, the problem of sin remains. So we may organize or structure things or strategize in different ways and 
for different places and different times and different peoples. And that's oftentimes why churches look different or sound different or smell different even. Uh, It's because they're trying to get the gospel to people in that particular context. All of our mission, I, I mentioned, did I mention our mission statement at the top? The mission of the River Church is to glorify God by making disciples and planting churches that transform lives, families, and communities with the good news of Jesus. And, and maybe I would, maybe we could restate it this way. The mission of the River Church could be restated. To glorify God by being a church of disciples who make disciples. Persevering in the rescue and transformation of people far from God through the prayerful proclamation of the good news of Jesus. What are we trying to do? We're simply just trying to restate our commander's intent so that we can understand what it looks like for us as a church to be on mission with him. And we, we want to be. Who are we? Disciples who make disciples. What do we do? We're going to persevere because this is an impossible mission. And we've got to just keep persevering that, that God will use us to help rescue people and transform them into God's image so that they can be with God. And we're going to do that through prayer and the proclamation of the good news of Jesus. I mean, that's, that's, that's what we're trying to do, folks. Will you participate? Will you walk with Jesus in this mission that he has called us to? Will you receive it as a part of the blessing of knowing him? And will you please never forget what motivates and empowers and helps us to fulfill this disciple-making mission? It's the authority of Christ behind it. And it's his presence assisting us at every step of the way. Let's do that. Let's be people who are doing that. And, and Lord willing, over the next few weeks, we'll look at that maybe even in more detail and, and break down that mission so we can understand fully the grace of God given to us in his commander's intent. Let's pray together.